0: I next met with Dr. Jonathan Friedberg to review papers on indolent lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And to begin, he commented on abstract 1664, looking at the prognostic implications of early relapse and follicular lymphoma.
1: I think this was a very interesting abstract and really has implications on the way we think about the disease. This was a registry-based study where they looked at a large group of patients with follicular lymphoma and looked at various cut points as far as how their disease behaved and then correlated it to overall survival. And in this study, what they demonstrated was that event-free survival at 12 months was highly predictive of ultimate outcome, so much so that they made the provocative conclusion that if you did not experience an event within the first 12 months of diagnosis, that the survival was not that different from age-matched controls. Whereas patients who had events early in the course of follicular lymphoma, and events in this were defined as time from diagnosis to progression, relapse, retreatment, or death due to any cause, those patients tended to do
0: poorly. So I was trying to recall, I thought that you and the lymphocare people presented something that was kind of similar to that. Was it last year?
1: That's right. We presented at ASH last year, and the manuscript is currently under review. A similar observation, we limited it to patients who were treated with RCHOP chemotherapy up front initially, and demonstrated that 20% of patients who were treated with RCHOP initially for follicular lymphoma experienced progression within the first two years and that group had only a 50 percent survival at five years compared to the group who did not progress within two years and i think that that's very concordant with this data set and it basically suggests to me that follicular lymphoma as we know is a heterogeneous disease and that patients who experience early progression probably have a unique biology and really need to be treated quite differently from the majority of patients who don't have early progression. So what's the pragmatic message here? I think there are two important points that the practicing oncologist needs to know about this. The first is to recognize that an early relapse of follicular lymphoma is a big problem. And in our center, when we see these patients, we strongly consider either clinical trials or potentially aggressive approaches like high-dose therapy and autologous stem cell transplant for this group. I should say that we don't know whether those types of measures overcome these poor outcomes and only prospective studies will address that. The other point to know is that we had a clinical trials planning meeting for the intergroup. I represented SWAG and my colleagues from ECOG and Alliance were there as well. And this group of patients was felt to be one of the highest priority areas for clinical trials. So I anticipate that the United States intergroup is going to design studies specifically for this. And in younger patients, the platform is likely to include an aggressive approach as you implied.
0: Any novel approaches to therapy that might be considered for these patients?
1: Well, all of these data sets were in the chemo immunotherapy era. And some of the agents we're going to be talking about later today, including the B cell receptor antagonists, the BCL2 inhibitors, and those other types of agents may very well overcome some of this intrinsic resistance. We really don't know.
0: Let's move on then and talk about abstract 799, the R-squared regimen.
1: Right. So this is an abstract from a European group that is looking at rituximab and lenalidomide in combination in patients with untreated follicular lymphoma. And this was a randomized study comparing that strategy to rituximab alone. And I think the background for this study is phase two data that comes out of MD Anderson, as well as the United States Alliance group that suggests that response rates are very high with the so-called R-squared or lenalidomide and rituximab combination. In this study, 154 patients were randomized, and the outcomes, not surprisingly, did demonstrate an improved complete remission rate in patients with the combination compared to rituximab alone. What surprised me in this study was that the CR rate was relatively low compared to what had been reported out of MD Anderson in the United States. And it was hard for me in seeing these results to understand exactly why that might be. It may be the way that CR is being determined. That having been said, these patients are being followed further And I think the most important message regarding this combination is that there's an ongoing phase three trial randomizing patients with follicular lymphoma to either the R-squared regimen or rituximab plus chemotherapy. And that will ultimately really define, I think, how this regimen is used.
0: So there was another paper I wanted to ask you about also looking at the R-squared regimen, abstract 4477. Yeah, this was a smaller
1: study, from a group in California that looked at only 22 patients and did demonstrate in a group of patients who had previously untreated disease in follicular lymphoma, great efficacy of the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab. There were two points to this study that I thought were worth mentioning. The first was that they had planned a prolonged maintenance phase of lenalidomide And I think this does bring up the question as to how this agent is best used. Generally, of course, when we give immunochemotherapy, we might give six cycles of treatment and you're done, or we might consider rituximab maintenance. With lenalidomide, of course, in myeloma and other diseases, we often think about continuous therapy. And I think it's really unclear in follicular lymphoma what the best strategy is. There may be toxicities that emerge with prolonged treatment, and this study did plan a prolonged treatment phase, demonstrated a higher CR rate, 62% in this study, compared to the study that we just spoke about. The other thing this study did was they tried to do some immunologic evaluations, looking at various cytokine levels to see if there were any profiles that predicted a poor outcome. In my mind, that work is important, but it's really hypothesis generating, given the very small patient sample size here.
0: And here, again, the total response rate, I guess, was 17 out of 18, 94% more in line with what we'd seen before. Just kind of curious, if you were to see a patient in second opinion who had untreated FL, and the first opinion was a doc who said, you know, I really think this R-squared regimen is really exciting. I don't think you have much to lose. You ought to try it. Would you say, I think that's a bad idea? Would you say, I think that's okay, but that's not what I do? Or what would you say?
1: I think we know that it's likely to be safe. There are enough patients that have been treated with that regimen. But I would personally not be very enthusiastic about recommending that regimen, And in my mind, given the fact that there are subsets of patients who do quite well with rituximab alone up front, and other patients who probably need chemotherapy, until we see the phase three results, I would not be very enthusiastic. And I have not seen that question evolve, at least in our region, yet.
0: And of course, I guess there are cost issues also. How about abstract 3091, a paper looking at toxicity related to adelacib? Yeah, this is a very important study in
1: my mind. And, you know, this was a poster. And I think that sometimes these quote unquote negative studies don't necessarily hit the prime time, but they're very important messages for the practicing oncologist. This was an alliance study that did, I think, a very rational thing and tried to take very active agents and combine them. And in this case, they were looking at idelalisib, the recently approved PI3 kinase delta inhibitor, lenalidomide and rituximab in combination. And clearly in mantle cell lymphomas and follicular lymphomas, this combination would have great promise because all of these agents have significant single agent activity. What they showed in this study was that despite having two various regimens that they were testing as far as dose and schedule, They had to abort the trial after only eight patients had been enrolled due to severe toxicity that was observed. This was a cytokine release type of syndrome that was life-threatening, including three patients who required the intensive care unit. And I think that what they're doing is pulling back and they're gonna start a more proper phase one evaluation to try to reach a conclusion on what may be safe as far as a combination cytokine release would never have been predicted looking at the activity of each of these single agents.
0: Any comments on your own experience at this point with idelalisib? it's been approved now and I'm kind of curious what your observation has been particularly in FL or an lymphoma, both in terms of efficacy and toxicity. This is the oral
1: PI3 kinase delta inhibitor. It's been approved for CLL as well as for follicular lymphoma And we've had a great deal of experience using this agent. It's, In my experience, in the patients who I've treated, it's very well tolerated. One side effect to have some awareness of is increased liver function tests, which tend to occur particularly in the lymphoma population of patients If this happens, there are recommendations to hold the drug, and frequently it can be restarted. I can say that in the patients who I've treated on label, I have not seen that event, but we do routinely monitor liver function tests. Otherwise, I've had great outcomes as far as efficacy with this drug, and I've been using it now relatively routinely in the setting of relapsed follicular lymphoma, I think it is probably more active than some of the other agents. And in fact, I would put this one on top of some of the other B-cell receptor pathway antagonists.
0: So typically, what line therapy are you using it in?
1: So I've used it in follicular lymphoma in the setting of second or third line therapy now. And I think that what I've been doing when I balance toxicity and efficacy is putting it ahead of lenalidomide and particularly in older patients where more aggressive chemotherapy programs may not be appropriate.
0: So speaking of newly approved or new agents, any thoughts about Abstract 800 presented by Dr. Nancy Bartlett on Ibrutinib and relapse refractory FL?
1: Yeah, this is another important quote-unquote negative abstract in my mind. Bottom line of this abstract was a study to evaluate the efficacy of abrutinib in relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma. The experience in follicular lymphoma with abrutinib was quite limited up until this time. There were some patients with follicular lymphoma included in the phase one trials. But I think particularly in phase one studies, when follicular lymphoma patients are enrolled, there's always a question as to how representative they are to true follicular lymphoma. Many of those patients might have transformed disease or have exhausted a number of other lines of therapy. At any rate, this study demonstrated that the drug was safe, 40 patients were enrolled, the toxicity was very similar to what had been described previously with nib. And the results, I'd say, were only modestly impressive. There was one complete response. The median progression-free survival was only nine months, relatively short and the overall response rate was 30%. And I can't emphasize enough how abrutinib has changed the way we think about CLL and changed the way we think about mantle cell lymphoma. It is truly, in my mind, a home run drug in those diseases. I think what this demonstrates, this particular study, is that that may not apply to all B-cell lymphomas and follicular lymphoma historically was the disease that was easier to treat. And biologically, we'd like to think is particularly reliant on the B cell receptor. But despite those factors, it doesn't seem to have the activity that even idelalisib has.
0: So we're going to talk in a couple of minutes about CLL papers and some things on abinatuzumab, But there were actually a couple of papers looking at abinutuzumab and FL. One abstract 4458, sort of the R squared version of obinutuzumab, so obinutuzumab and lenalidomine.
1: Right. So just to remind the listeners, obinutuzumab is a newly approved monoclonal antibody against CD20. It's a type two antibody, so it has a slightly different mechanism of action compared to, with rituximab, and it's designed to enhance ADCC as well as potentially direct killing. And in CLL. A randomized trial of chlorambucil rituximab versus chlorambucil obinutuzumab showed significant benefit of obinutuzumab. Thus far in follicular lymphoma, as well as non-Hodgkin lymphoma in general, we really have not had clear evidence that obinutuzumab is any better than rituximab. There was a randomized trial that showed a higher response rate, but a similar progression-free survival, and there's some phase three trials going on. In this study, the authors tried to, as you say, modify the R-squared regimen with the addition of obinutuzumab instead of rituximab combined with lenalidomide. And they treated 20 patients with this combination. And in looking at the experience of these patients, I will say that I think there was modestly more toxicity than you might see with rituximab. That doesn't surprise me because the infusion reactions with obinutuzumab tend to be greater. And the response rate was 68%, and I think it's very hard to say whether that's any better than you would see with R squared, because as we've just discussed, there are data sets that are all over the map on really what you would expect with R squared. So I think this was more of a proof of concept that you can give this combination. And I think it's going to require larger studies and a greater level of evidence in non-Hodgkin lymphoma that obinutuzumab really differentiates itself from rituximab.
0: So in the same vein, abstract 1743 looks at obinutuzumab with CHOP, so sort of OCHOP, and also with bendamustine, you know, BO, I guess.
1: Right, and this is really tied in with the development strategy of obinutuzumab in lymphoma. I think that given the experience in CLL with clarambucil, the sponsor hopes that there's going to be demonstrated benefit to an obinutuzumab chemo combination compared to our chemo. This study treated 81 patients. About half of them got the obinutuzumab and bendamustine, and the other half got CHOP with obinutuzumab. And what was, again, really demonstrated here largely was safety. There, to me, didn't seem a whole lot of difference in toxicity to what you might expect with rituximab combinations. There were some infections that maybe were a little bit unusual, like viral meningitis, bacterial pneumonia. But in a small number of patients, it's really hard to interpret that. Uh, They also follow these patients for a prolonged period of time and did demonstrate prolonged B cell depletion. Whether this will have implications long-term on some of the sinopulmonary infections and things we sometimes see with rituximab maintenance remains to be seen. But I think what this study really does is lay the groundwork for an ongoing phase three trial called the Gallium study, which is doing the appropriate test, randomizing patients, getting chemoimmunotherapy to either rituximab or obinutuzumab.
0: And I guess we should point out that in this study, they got two years of obinutuzumab maintenance. Is that what the Gallium trial is doing also?
1: Yes. It's designed to really take the Prima experience and compare it to an obinutuzumab combination.
0: So there's a lot of interest and excitement about the BCL2 inhibitor ABT199. And there was a report at ASH, a poster, looking at this agent combined with BR in patients with re refractory, NHL. Any thoughts about that?
1: Right. So this drug has had great promise in various versions for several years. And I think it's had a long development path, in part because a previous version of this drug had unacceptable toxicity and was a complicated drug to take. It required three or four hours of even mixing by a pharmacist in real time before you could take it. The ABT199 formulation is much more of a drug. It's available orally in a pill form and patients tolerate it much better. And therefore, it has been under evaluation for various B-cell malignancies. It has shown significant activity in mantle cell lymphoma. And in this particular study, The investigators from various sites in the United States combined it with bendamustine and rituximab in patients with refractory or relapsed indolent lymphomas. 26 patients were enrolled and this was a dose finding type of study In the third cohort, as they were increasing the dose of ABT-199, they began to see some dose-limiting toxicities. They included febrile neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, so nothing unexpected. And in the end, they concluded that this was a tolerable safety profile of this drug in combination with BR. And they now have a Phase two study in the works combining this agent with BR in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma.
0: What do we know about single agent activity in endolymphoma? lymphoma?
1: There are cases that are shown really quite dramatic responses in patients with refractory follicular lymphoma as well as particularly mantle cell lymphoma with this agent. There's a famous slide that gets shown at many meetings of a patient whose almost whole abdomen was replaced with tumor a 14 or 15 centimeter mass that almost disappeared with single agent activity. And in fact, there's always a concern for tumor lysis in that situation, which is not something we generally see with indolent lymphoma. There was no tumor lysis type of toxicity that was observed in this trial.
0: So, before we go into the next abstract, I just have to throw this quick question in. Yesterday, I interviewed Dr. Craig Moskowitz, and one of the things we were talking about was peripheral T cell lymphoma not otherwise specified. So, we were talking about a couple of Ash papers, and I said to him, Well, how do you manage these patients off study? And he said he uses CHOAP chemotherapy and tests them for CD30. If they're positive, adds in Bividotin. And I was like, what? And I'm just kind of curious what you think about that thought.
1: So that's the subject of an ongoing phase three clinical trial. Right. We are participating in that trial, and patients are being randomized to either get brintuximab in combination with CHOP chemotherapy without the vincristine or CHOP alone, and then we often will consolidate patients with autologous stem cell transplant after. So we are certainly interested in that approach in the setting of a clinical trial. I think it's premature to do that outside of a clinical trial myself.
0: So let's spend the rest of our time talking about CLL, beginning with a study that I guess was presented last year's ASH. And then more data this year, the CLL-10 study comparing FCR to BR.
1: Right. I think this is an important trial. When bendamustine became more prominently used in the United States and the publication of the Rummel trial in follicular lymphoma suggesting it was superior to RCHOP, the German CLL group took on the question as to whether the bendamustine-rituximab combination might have equivalency or be superior to FCR chemotherapy. And we know that bendamustine and rituximab combination is quite active in CLL. It has a label in CLL in the United States. And this study enrolled a large number of patients, over 500 patients who were relatively young patients, relatively healthy patients, and they did not have deletion of chromosome 17. And they all had indications for therapy and really randomized them head-to-head between FCR and bendamustine and rituximab. And the preliminary results were presented a year ago, and this is really the final data cut that demonstrates a higher CR rate in patients treated with FCR. Perhaps more importantly than CR, the rate of minimal residual disease using The technology that they had in place in Germany was 74% with FCR and 62% with BR. And the toxicity, of course, was a bit higher with FCR. And with 18 months of follow-up now, there persisted to be 53% of cases with FCR that remained MRD negative compared to only 24% with BR. And I think the conclusions of this trial are that the response rate and the duration of response is somewhat higher with FCR, but that is balanced by increased toxicity with FCR. And I think that what this means for the practicing oncologist is that you do have a choice. Both regimens are quite active. If you have a young, fit patient, without a lot of contraindications to treatment, their best chance at a prolonged disease-free interval using chemoimmunotherapy is with FCR. But if you have any hesitation about tolerance, or if as patients begin to get older, and of course, CLL is a disease of older people, BR is an acceptable alternative.
0: What about in patients with DEL17P? They were excluded from this study, but what data do we have on FCR, and I guess indirectly comparing that to Ebrutinib.
1: So I think we have an abstract coming up that's going to detail another experience. But I think without question, the, the presence of deletion of 17 at diagnosis is uncommon, it's probably about 5% of CLL. It becomes more common with time. So if you have relapse disease, you tend to see it much more often. But if you have a patient who walks in the door with deletion of 17, I think that we have data that really suggests the best chance at obtaining a response that's going to have some durability is with a nib or an abrutinib containing regimen. We know that FCR, the response rate is relatively low, and more importantly, the duration of response is quite low. NCCN has recommended allogeneic transplant in this setting as part of a consolidation approach upfront. I think with abrutinib, there's some question as to the importance of doing that, and the field is moving very quickly.
0: What about FCR versus BR in 17P?
1: So the number of cases with BR that have been treated with 17P deletion is quite limited. In the relapse setting, as expected, the outcome of patients with 17P deletion and treated with BR is inferior. And I think there's no signal that BR overcomes
0: resistance. So I'm curious what your thoughts were about POSTER 3327 looking at salvage therapy with patients who got randomized to chlorambucil in the trial, comparing it to chlorambucil
1: Right. I think the background of this trial is really from the ASH meeting last year, followed by the New England Journal publication. That I mentioned a bit earlier, the randomized trial of chlorambucil rituximab versus chlorambucil alone versus chlorambucil and obinutuzumab, showing that the obinutuzumab combination was far better, and really surprised a lot of people, candidly including myself, the magnitude of benefit seen with the substitution of obinutuzumab in the setting of CLL. What this study did, this was like an add-on study that took patients who were receiving clorambucil alone and then put them on a trial combining clorambucil with obinutuzumab. So these were patients who weren't doing that well with clorambucil alone. These were a higher risk group. They were older patients. 12% of them had deletion of 11Q and 20% had deletion of 17P. And despite this high risk, really what was shown was that the response rates were quite favorable. The median progression-free survival was 17 months. And it really suggests that including the clorambucil combination as an option in the relapse setting is something that you could consider for an older patient.
0: So it looks like they had a response rate of 87%. Yeah.
1: And keep that in mind that it's in a group of patients where chlorambucil really wasn't active. I was really impressed. Yeah, I think it really suggests that obinutuzumab in a relatively not heavily pretreated patient population has significant activity. Now, you know, at some level, we shouldn't be that surprised. Ofatumumab, another novel anti-CD20 antibody, does have a label in CLL based upon a response rate in refractory disease as a single agent and uh, ofatumumab was subsequently studied up front in CLL and did demonstrate significant activity. It's not used very much. I think there's a feeling that obinutuzumab may be more active than ofatumumab. But it, essentially, the, I think the question here is how important is the clorambucil if the obinutuzumab is having such a high response rate?
0: So there's another poster I thought was really interesting, 3345 relating to obinutuzumab. And this was some safety data from a big phase three study, so-called green trial. But this report was specifically looking at an alteration in the dose and schedule of obinutuzumab in an attempt to deal with infusion reactions. What was your take on that?
1: Right. So the big issue with obinutuzumab with the infusion reactions is that these can be, in my mind, much more severe than what you see with rituximab. Patients don't die, but the rigors, all of the usual types of infusion reactions we'd see with rituximab tend to be exaggerated. And in the initial trial that we participated in several years ago with an we almost had to admit some patients to the hospital just to finish the infusion because it's a big dose of antibody and it takes a long time if you have to keep shutting it off and managing infusion reactions. So here they modified the schedule to give a very low dose, only 25 milligrams of the antibody on day one, and then the rest of the dose on day two. And then they give additional doses on day eight and day 15 of cycle one, and then move on to just give it on day one of cycles two through six. And they combined it with bendamustine, with FC chemotherapy, as well as with clarambucil and showed that with that strategy, the risk for serious toxicity seemed to be lower. There was a rate of tumor lysis syndrome observed. And I can give you an anecdote of a patient I recently treated with clarambucil obinutuzumab, who developed tumor lysis syndrome, he did not have particularly bulky disease, but he had to be admitted to the hospital. He was an 83-year-old man who did not have underlying renal insufficiency beyond the fact that his GFR was somewhat low due to his age. And I think that we have to appreciate that obinutuzumab is active enough that there is a risk for that. This study, again, as you said, is a preliminary safety study. There's not a whole lot of efficacy data included. And I think it will be interesting to observe how this evolves. But again, I think this is the direction that the sponsor is going to help answer the question, ultimately, whether obinutuzumab should replace rituximab in CLL.
0: You know, of course, that overriding question is of great interest, but just this issue about the infusion reaction, I found interesting. Am I correct in saying that the actual total dose of abinutuzumab received by the patients was the same as usual? It was just that the day one dose was decreased?
1: That's right, because they made up for it on day two. And you know there are other protocols that also have given like 100 milligrams on day one and 900 milligrams on day two. Here, they really tried to do almost all of the work on day two. And I think that this is a drug where it's literally the first few drops of the drug drip in and you start to see the infusion reaction immediately. It's not inherently clear to me why We see such a profound infusion reaction. This is a humanized antibody. In theory, it should be even less foreign than rituximab. And I think it clearly speaks to perhaps some of the other mechanisms involved with this antibody as far as cell kill and cytokine release.
0: And right now, what's your usual day one dose? So
1: I've used the label and used what the Germans did, which is given 100 milligrams. I think that though, if somebody's having trouble this is reassuring that you can give less on day one and probably succeed in making up for it on day two.
0: So what about paper 327 presented by Susan O'Brien on the Resonate trial of ibrutinib?
1: Right, and this I made an allusion to a bit earlier. I think this was a key question. We've recognized that the subset of patients with CLL with deletion of chromosome 17 have a uniquely poor outcome. And standard treatment really was inappropriate for those patients. In fact, had we been having this meeting a couple of years ago, I probably would have spoken about drugs like lenalidomide or alumtuzumab in that patient population. Here, this is a very important study. This was the primary analysis of a phase two trial in patients with relapsed or refractory deletion 17 CLL. There were similar experiences in the upfront setting but all of the patients in this particular trial failed at least one therapy. Bottom line was 144 patients were treated, and there was really market efficacy observed. About 80% of patients remained progression-free at 12 months, and that's superior to what would certainly be expected with even aggressive immunochemotherapy. I think this is better than FCR, it's better than alumtuzumab, at least phase two experiences. They did demonstrate progressive disease in 20 patients. And in 11 of these patients, Richter transformation was reported. And I think it begs the question as to whether maybe they had some underlying Richter transformation. And I think this is certainly a message that although Ibrutinib may do a lot of heavy lifting in high-risk patients who have deletion of 17, if there is evidence of histological transformation, it's unlikely to be successful as a single agent.
0: What about Abstract 330 looking at a phase 3 study of Odell Lessib? specifically looking at the issue of patients with DEL17P?
1: abrutinib clearly, I think, is more established in CLL, but idelilisib, recently approved, also has significant activity in CLL, and this study, I think, is an important contribution that suggests that idelilisib does have activity in particular populations of patients who have otherwise expected poor outcomes. This study was a subset analysis of the phase three study that was published in the New England Journal that demonstrated that idelalisib and rituximab was better than rituximab alone in patients with CLL who required therapy. And what they showed was that the high-risk group of patients defined by deletion of 17P or a TP53 mutation, as well as unmutated immunoglobulin heavy chain. The median progression-free survival in that complicated poor risk group of patients who got idelalisib had not been reached as compared to only five months who got rituximab alone. The conclusions here really was that the deletion of 17P did not appear to significantly impact outcome if patients were treated with idelalisib. And that's similar to what is seen with Brutinib, at least in relatively short follow-up. So I think this is another tool in our toolbox for patients with deletion of 17. It's hard to compare Brutinib and Idelilisib. I've had some patients who progress on one of those agents and then respond to the other one. And I think that you know whether ultimately combinations will be better or whether a sequencing approach is appropriate, I think, remain to be seen. And hopefully, studies will be addressing that.
0: Any speculation about why chemotherapy or our chemotherapy seems relatively ineffective with del 17 p and yet these B cell inhibitors, it doesn't seem to matter at all?
1: I think that the complex biology behind deletion of chromosome 17 is not that well understood. I think it must be, at least to some degree, that that subset of cases is particularly reliant on signaling through the B
0: cell receptor. And nobody would have expected that. So we were talking before about ABT199, and there was data presented abstract 325, looking at that agent with rituximab and relapsed refractory CLL. What were your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I think this is an important contribution. Again, this was a phase 1B study. so. This really was designed to come up with a dose for subsequent phase two development, combining ABT199 with rituximab. And 49 patients were enrolled. There were five different treatment cohorts of various doses of ABT199. And these were relatively poor prognosis patients. 27% were refractory to fludarabine. An additional 18% were refractory to rituximab. 18% had deletion of 17 and the vast majority of them had unmutated immunoglobulin heavy chain. And basically, the overall response rate was 86% with this combination. That's very high. The response rate of single-agent rituximab and CLL is much lower. 31% of these patients had CRs, and efficacy was observed across all cohorts, but they did start to see some tumor lysis syndrome toward higher doses. So their plan is to use 400 milligrams daily, and they're planning to take this combination in a head-to-head study against BR in the setting of CLL, who is previously untreated, and really to ask the question as to whether a biologic combination like this might be chemoimmunotherapy.
0: So we've talked about a lot of new players in CLL that look really, really encouraging I'm curious kind of what some of the thoughts are right now in terms of trials and what are some of the trials being done, combinations, sequences?
1: So I think in the upfront setting, in the United States at least, the real effort is to define the role of abrutinib, or in this case, ABT-199. And those studies are all head-to-head comparisons with chemoimmunotherapy. I think in the relapse setting, it becomes much more complicated because the patient population is quite heterogeneous and no question for certain high-risk features like deletion of 17, these biologic agents or tyrosine kinase inhibitors seem to have much more activity. What the role of idelalisib versus abrutinib? how important it is to combine them with rituximab, duration of therapy, do you need to give these forever? Can you take drug holidays? Will MRD assessments help us in those decision making? All of those are subjects for trials. And I think that even though we can make patients feel very well with these agents and using them on the label is quite appropriate, I think that when there's an opportunity to enroll patients in trials, it will help us get the answers quickly that you really are asking.